The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day to you, Stephen. I got to tell you, my head is about to explode just trying to get my brain around all the legal issues flying around in the news this week. There are a lot of issues. We picked the 14th Amendment today because I think it touches on so many of these issues. And if we tried to go through just the top tier questions of what's going on that touch the 4th and 14th Amendment related to due process and citizenship and equal protection, we would probably be here for the remainder of the day. We would indeed, Mitch. And the other thing that I think is timely and interesting, and it makes it almost a perennial topic for us, is the uh, recent um, event of Law Day. May 1st of each year marks Law Day. And uh, from a local front, I can share that there was a presentation conducted at the San Luis Obispo County Courthouse where several dignitaries and members of the legal profession uh, had an opportunity to speak about the law. And uh, it took place uh, at the uh, right outside the law library, Mitch, right near one of the departments where I work, uh, Department 10 in San Luis Obispo County Superior Court. And uh, I think it's really significant that the 14th Amendment uh, is the amendment that I think jumps out, in my opinion, and I think you'll probably join me on this, is uh, being one of the most robust and significant amendments uh, of all time. Uh, no question about it. And we had a law day up here in Monterey County as well. A number of speakers that you will know well, uh, Justice Adrian Grover was the speaker, over at Hartnell College, and she, as always, did a wonderful job tying the Constitution right back to the day-to-day lives of each of us. She uh, it was a, such a beautiful, poignant moment when she reached down and said, to, this was a group of high school students, and said, you know, I, think, I think most of you probably envision the Constitution as these this huge document, hand-scripted on parchment, hiding behind a glass somewhere. And then she held up a copy of the Constitution and 
as you can as you know, it's so small. And she goes, "This is it. This is all you need to know." Yeah, <laughs> so it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually still have the pocket version of the Constitution that I've uh, that I used to carry around quite a bit, um, and it, it's really. Uh, it's fascinating how if you look at uh, or you think about the parchment papers you said in the original signing and then you look at the actual uh, real rendition, the provisions, um, it's an amazing comparison. But you know, Mitch, the 14th Amendment, and I, and I think a good way to get our topic started today is really to just uh, bat around the idea of what we think about uh, right away when we think about the 14th Amendment. And I think it's probably right to say that most people think of equal protection. And as you referenced in the intro, due process of laws, those are two significant issues. But if you look back to the history, and really it is one of the Reconstruction Amendments along with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and the connection between the 13th and 14th Amendment, the abolishment of slavery, and then the uh, development of expanded rights, and then rights being taken away by the courts and then given back. It's just a fascinating topic. It is, and I, I must say that in preparing for today's show and reading back over that history that you just recounted, it, it reminded me that this country and this constitution under which we've been developed and the balance of power between the executive and the courts and the legislative, if we think it's complicated now, I am comforted. I mean, I really am. I am comforted by looking back at that period of American history and you all of the things you just recounted. We were coming out of the Civil War. We were reconstructing the United States. We were trying to figure out how to get the southern states back into the Union with a balance of some type of fairness and how to count votes and all of the things. And it was that, that exact balance between the, the administration, the Congress, and the courts that brought it all back together. And much of it is, just as you said, packed into the 14th Amendment. <laughs> oh, it is. And the other thing that we'll expand upon is just how the 14th Amendment impacts so many segments of everyday life. And I, I think it's uh, almost inescapable when you start thinking about uh, how important it is. Uh, for instance, workplace, uh, rights of workers, the importance of uh, members of uh, human resources departments and understanding equal uh, protection type laws, even in private sector. So it really is quite expansive in the development and the interpretation of the courts. Um, I can certainly expand upon due process of the law as it relates to a lot of criminal procedure issues and equal protection. The right to fair trial is another one, Mitch, that is very, very near and dear to my heart because that's quite a sacred right. And it's just, uh, I don't know, where do you want to start? <laughs> Let, let's talk about a, a quick one, because it's not immediately in this week's news, but it's it's certainly been here in the recent news, which is the, the citizenship portion of the 14th Amendment, which actually defines that citizenship and the rights that flow from the Constitution, both federal and state, were interpreted by the court back in the 1800s to include not just 
natural born as defined in the constitution, but literally anybody whose physical body is within the boundaries of a state or the United States. And we've certainly heard that discussion come up in the immigration cases that are now working their way through the federal courts. Yes, without question. So so there's another thing that people do not think of the 14th Amendment about as, as defining citizenship. And as I said, you know, 1898, the Supreme Court extended the 14th Amendment to address uh, a child of non-citizens born in the United States, the child born in the United States. We've heard that discussed. We've it's it's come up within the immigration discussion. So I suspect you're going to see the 14th Amendment right back square in that discussion as the various immigration cases work their way up through the federal system and most likely to the Supreme Court. Yes, no, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, the right uh, and the, the rights conferred upon uh, natural-born citizens and then individuals born in the United States, uh, it, the power source for that is indeed the 14th Amendment, and there's uh, going to be future interpretation of the meaning of the Fourth Amendment as it relates to immigration law and citizenship rights, uh, along with the other issues that I raised, too, which is the right to a fair trial and and uh, I think, you know, Mitch, one thing... Let me just reference really quickly, uh, let's put a point context, uh, what comes to my mind. So, for example, uh, probably more than a year ago, we talked about when Arizona was having uh, issues related to how they were going to apply immigration laws. And the question is, well, what can the federal court say about Arizona? You know, it flows through the 4th to the 14th, where the state could not identify and apply different rules to individuals based on race, color, nationality. And the federal government could come in and say, you can't do that, state of Arizona. Those individuals have certain rights. So you know, that was the most recent case that, was, that most people can probably remember when we had a notorious sheriff in Arizona who decided he was going to apply some local and state rules differently than the rights that the courts then said flowed from the 4th to the 14th to those citizens. So it's very real, very much happening in this day and age, even though we're talking about an amendment that's almost 150 years old. That's right. And the, and the, and the, the specific segment of the 14th Amendment is the citizenship clause. That's the right. one that we've been talking about and that's the one we introduced. There's also privileges and immunities clause, the due process clause, and the Equal Protection Clause. and Kind of saving due process to the end, because I know you're going to want to sink your teeth into that one. That has been virtually your entire career of working within the elements of the Due Process Clause and in your teaching of evidence and all of uh, all of those factors. Uh, but so let's, let's talk about some of the other things. The Privileges and Immunities Clause, that's not really thought of as, as one of the major parts. Um, but it, it again, is the connectivity that said that states can't do things that the federal courts uh, or the federal constitution gives right to. So the, the, that it, the interesting thing about the 14th Amendment is it, I see it as kind of the bridging language to so many of these things you've talked about due process, privileges and immunities, citizenship, uh, 
all of those things get get banded together through the 14th Amendment and the interpretation by the courts for the last 150 years. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And the Privileges and Immunities Clause is directly connected to the citizenship issue in terms of nat- national citizenship or state citizenship. And the notion of privileges and immunities really means that those uh, those privileges and immunities, in other words, the privileges that are conferred upon citizens, need to be uh, treated with with e- with equity. In other words, for natural citizens or state citizens, and then that is directly also connected to birth rights and where where you are actually born. So there's a direct connection between the citizenship issue and the immigration issue and privileges and immunities. So I must say that I started this week a little more confused than I normally am, but I think I'm feeling a little better about it at the end of this week. We actually started this week with the President of the United States saying that what I thought he had said was that the Constitution, the checks and balances in the United States Constitution, many of which are included in the 14th Amendment, were archaic and a really bad thing for this country. And I got to say that I figured that just about every lawyer in America's ears perked up and said, what? Wait a minute. What? How? The checks and balances in the Constitution are a bad thing for the country. But as you're going to take us out under break, I will say that it appears that those comments might have been taken out of context. And he was talking more about the more archaic rules of the Senate and not the Constitution. So I, f- I ended this week a little better, f- feeling a little better about that than I started. Oh, okay, so you're, you're acknowledging that something might have been taken out of context. I, that's good. It, I, I'm acknowledging that the comment that was made made it easy to take it out of context, but everybody else seems to have clarified it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I understand that. I, I get it. So what, which, what, do you want to talk about uh, one of the the clauses within the 14th Amendment and save due process for the end you had mentioned? I know we are coming up on the break, but we can probably talk about a couple of those issues. Yeah, well, it's the, you know, for example, right of privacy is one of the elements that, that's, that we're going to build ourselves to because I'm kind of tiptoeing into it. Because you know, most people don't realize that the right of privacy is not in itself built into the Constitution. That's but, right. But we get to it through the 14th Amendment. And so let's talk about a drum roll of where we're going to get to as we start digging into these various rights protected by the 14th Amendment. We've talked about the right of privacy many times on this show as far as a fundamental right, but I don't remember that we've ever actually tracked it back to say, oh, by the way, this thing that we take for granted, both in state and federal law these days, comes to us through this somewhat little-referenced 14th Amendment. I like that. So when we come back from the break, Mitch, let's expand upon this idea of right of privacy, and I think we can add right to travel to that, and the idea of whether or not it's implicitly stated in the 14th Amendment, or as you suggested, that it's actually uh, inferred or that there's an implication that the 14th Amendment would serve as the power source for the right to travel and the right to privacy. When we return after this break, we'll continue our discussion on the 14th Amendment. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we're talking about the 14th Amendment, and this is really in recognition of Law Day, which was May 1st and celebrated uh, around the nation in various different forms. And the 14th Amendment is the topic that we've chosen for today. And when we took our break, we were talking about uh, the various uh, segments of the 14th Amendment. And Mitch, we wanted to talk about procedural due process and substantive due process and really get into the topic of due process in general. Yeah, Stephen, can you describe for us a little the kind of the basics of those two pieces and and this is going to give you the opportunity to talk about the penumbra of the constitution 
Yeah, so, you know, Mitch, when we think of procedural due process, uh, we're really talking about the, the right to access and fair notice and opportunity to be heard. And a good way to set this up is many people are familiar with uh, lawsuits in general or a, have a basic understanding of the criminal justice system and, and what it means to be charged with a crime. But what is often uh, not recognized is the number of rights that go along with that. So, for instance, if someone is criminally charged with a criminal offense or they are uh, named as a defendant in a civil lawsuit, there's procedural due process rights that give that person uh, a right to notice, a right to be heard. The same is true with respect to edicts or rulings by the government that impact citizens in a number of ways. Uh, it is a basic tenet and rule of, due pro of procedural due process that we as citizens have a right to notice uh, and that really just means awareness of some kind of an act or an event that's occurring. It's a good way of thinking about it. So, so Stephen, let me back up just a second because, again, many things we take for granted, but I find this fascinating. It's, I think it's easy for everybody to understand criminal due process. The idea when the government is going to take action against you, we now fully understand that there are procedural steps your Miranda rights, all of these standards that you've talked about from a police stop to the charging decisions for the district attorney to the initial motions in court and eventually to decisions by judges and juries. Okay, I get that. I think everybody gets that. But isn't it fascinating that the Constitution decided that it's going to also extend that due process to civil matters as well? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, Mitch, most people think about, well, one of the, the great differences between a criminal action and a civil action is uh, the result. And the way, a good way of explaining it is that when someone is criminally charged, their freedom um, and liberty is, is at stake because they may face incarceration or significant fines that impact them. And then in the civil arena, there's, there's monetary damages typically in a lawsuit. And uh, most people would think of the procedural due process rights as probably having more importance within criminal, uh, criminal venue. But you're right, it certainly expands out into civil and private sector. And I think your point was, wow, it is interesting that it extends out to private sector uh, in a setting that really doesn't have what I'll call state action or or a government kind of connection. Yeah, I find that, I mean, I think that's just amazing because it could have just as easily developed to where, okay, the, the, the Constitution is going to regulate what the government can do. But the rest of you, if you want a contract between two individuals, that's just up to you. Go solve that on your own. The government should have no role to play in that. And yet it it actually flows back to the Magna Carta, which many of our uh, fundamental rights in the Constitution flow from, which really goes back to the 1300s. And that's the idea that we've again heard that you, know, you should not be deprived of your, your liberty or your property without the due process of law. And so that, that concept of both 
liberty, which is the criminal side most likely of being able to have your liberty taken and being incarcerated, but the the loss of property, which is the civil side, is also protected. So we had a choice when we drafted the Constitution of whether we were going to carry that clause in, and we did. But it's it's not a new clause, but it still just fascinates me that the, the government is going to be involved in providing that type of constitutional protection for both criminal and civil rights. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you make a good point. What what is interesting, Mitch, is that I think the policy and the spirit behind the notice and the importance of being heard and having the right to respond when you are facing criminal charges uh, should transfer over. The reasoning should transfer over into the civil sector too, even though it is typically private in nature. If you really peel back all the layers in a civil lawsuit, you're still using the court system as a means of actually bringing parties together. So I think there is natural harmony there and, and, and that uh, the founding fathers had that in mind. So the, the, that's the, the due process part, the procedural due process, and we get it. Uh, that's, that's very... That, that's part of what we've talked about so many times of the what the state must do to give you your notice and your rights and the steps and and not surprisingly this has been some of the most litigated parts of the entire constitution particularly around all of these due process rights and for the most part i don't know is it do you think it's fair to say that they have over time if you look about the whole body of work in challenging due process for the most part it has come down on on the side of the citizens. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I think I, I think that is uh, the result of a, a pretty well-grounded theory, and that is uh, balance, an equal playing field. So, for instance, if you look to uh, most of, or a lot of the case law in the criminal case, when we talk about procedural due process specifically, there is often cites to the government having access to great resources and a suspect or a defendant potentially not having those same resources. So it, it I think it is an effort to balance the playing field and it's well-reasoned in terms of the importance of notice and the right to be heard. And, and frankly, uh, I think that's the way it should be. So that, that it also then extends into the more what they call substantive due process, the penumbra of the Constitution, this broader reach of what was intended as rights, even though they weren't enumerated specifically. Yeah, and that's the you know the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment also incorporates most of the provisions in the Bill of Rights which were originally applied against only the federal government and applies them against all states. So it uh, is a means by which other rights can also be triggered and that uh, citizens can avail themselves of a number of different rights. So we've, we are going to see that come right back into the Supreme Court here shortly, but the, in most recently it's been talked about things such as the right to marry, uh, abortion rights are going to come back into the news, and each of those have been uh, frequently based around individual state laws. So someone might wonder, how is it that you can get 
that case, a state law who's determining what their regulations, what their rights are going to be into federal court, it's going to be through the 14th Amendment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. And I mean, some other examples that we've seen, and they've been in the news uh, recently, right to marry, right to live together as a family, parental rights, visitation rights. It. I think the point, Mitch, is that Although there is not um, explicit or exact language within the 14th Amendment that appears to give, uh, give new rights or bestow new rights, it's, it's been interpreted uh, to include uh, things like right to marry, right to live together as a family, visitation rights, parental rights, and all those things. And I think the they are tethered to the, the 14th Amendment, and there's language in the 14th Amendment to support that. So I think you can still be a textualist or, a, or an originalist and still find it to be sound uh, by using the 14th Amendment as the power source. And so that's what actually then extended into the right to privacy that we talked about earlier. You have to get there through that this this interpretation of this broad body of, of rights that are provided in the Bill of Rights. And, and, and that, the right of privacy, m- many people may forget that that, that became the, the basis of Roe v. Wade. And, and most people go, well, wait a minute, how does the right of privacy bridge to a woman's right to choose on an issue such as abortion. And yet this is this is what we're talking about. This is how it got there from the 4th to the 14th into the right of privacy into that decision of Roe v. Wade in 1973. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, what you've done there is you've, you've also introduced a connection between the 14th Amendment and the 4th Amendment. Um, I had to find a way to weave that in, right, Mitch? That's right. Uh, because, I mean, it's directly connected to the right of privacy. So there's, there's definitely a connection there. The Fourth Amendment is the provision that protects citizens from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. And there's also a warrants provision within the Fourth Amendment. And that speaks to the issue of the formality of search warrants and the execution of search warrants and how they should be con- conducted by law enforcement. So there, there's another example yet again, of a connection between right to privacy that I think can be connected to the 14th Amendment and then its application and uh, relationship to the Fourth Amendment. Because, uh, as you well know, there are uh, safeguards in place that protect citizens from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. Note that I said by the government. That's right. We well, need- we need and, that connection because it doesn't extend out to, to private individuals. Well, and we're yet going to still see this discussed because we have yet to resolve what corporations who have data, who are holding private data, have to give to the government. And that's going to come right back through this same discussion, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, you're talking, talking about, about the Googles and the, and the internet providers and we still have this tension that has yet to be resolved. Actually, it got more complicated in the most recent discussion around FCC rules about where the current administration wants to roll back some of those provisions that were uh, by executive order to say that what appeared to be a stronger protection of individuals' information that's being held by these third-party corporate providers by contract 
it appeared under the Obama administration that those were going to be protected under the 14th. It appears under the Trump administration that they're not as inclined to go that direction. Not yet resolved, but still right now in the news. Yeah, no, that's true. And there's a host of issues connected to uh, standing also there and the right to assert uh, the right to privacy and whether or not it's legitimately um, presented. Um, I think, you know, the issue of whether or not the party has a stake or an ownership interest in the property. And I think you're speaking about the issue of companies being forced to reveal information, right, Mitch? Both that and voluntarily selling the information. So I've yeah. given my personal information to a retailer. They now have my entire buying history. That They have that by a contractual agreement between me as an individual and the corporation. But do I still have the property rights to say something before they can then sell my personal data to a third party at a profit? I get nothing from it. And I don't even get the permission to decide who they well, get to sell it to. Well, you do get something from it, right, Mitch? Don't forget about the incessant emails that you'll end up getting. <laughs> this, is, this is actually a good topic to expand upon because, I mean, I think we've both been victims of that one, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you're asked, can I, can I get your email address? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, that's a good one to expand upon because there's a lot of issues lurking there connected to right to privacy. Uh, Including, you know, businesses that are forced to reveal information. Yeah, well, we can talk about that a little more after the break. Let's I, do it. You're exactly right. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about the 14th Amendment, and our discussion has weaved into some other segments, including right to privacy. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. 
Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We will continue our discussion about the 14th Amendment. We've been talking about the rights that are conferred by the 14th Amendment, and we're doing this in large part in recognition of Law Day that was on May 1st and celebrated throughout the nation. And Mitch, uh, before we uh, went on the break, we were talking about the connection between Fourth Amendment and 14th Amendment and a little bit about searches and right to privacy, and we talked a little, or at least used the term standing a couple times, and I thought maybe we would expand a little bit on that. I think that's important, because although that may sound like a inside baseball reference that only lawyers would care about, really this, this issue of standing is as fundamental a question as, as due process and equal protection, because without standing, you don't get your day in court, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Mitch. And a good way to explain this in kind of pedestrian fashion first is standing is the key to open the door is a good way of thinking about that. So uh, if you don't have a stake in the action or a viable claim, um, in other words, if you're not truly uh, an aggrieved party, and that you can't cite to a cognizable harm, you do not have standing, which really means you do not have the right to effectively, or you cannot effectively trigger the rights uh, that are set out in the amendments. That's a really good way of thinking about it. So proving that you actually are an aggrieved party and you've suffered a cognizable harm is the ticket to get you in to be heard on your matter. So in other words, you don't even get a court or a tribunal to hear about the merits or the facts of a dispute unless you can first prove that you're the right party and something's happened to you. And that's come up, you know, as we've talked about on this court twice very recently in two of the president's executive orders, the argument was that the state of Washington didn't have standing to argue about immigration law because it was a federal issue and the federal government deals with immigration law and that the state uh, didn't have a right to come. It wasn't aggrieved, it wasn't damaged, and if they hadn't 
won over the argument on standing in the Ninth Circuit, it was over, right? They would have never, that case goes away and somebody else would have had to bring it. Yeah, no, that's right, Mitch. And we've had the discussion before, too, within the context of uh, police and citizen encounters, too. And and that's another important point. You know, when when an individual feels that their privacy rights have been uh, intruded upon by a government actor, that would give rise to a potential claim, let's say, in a search and seizure context. But if it's a purely private person that intrudes into a private area, then the venue to settle some kind of claim or dispute is probably going to be purely civil in nature. In other words, unless there's a connection between uh, the aggrieved party's harm and a government actor is the good way of thinking about it. There needs to be what I would call in the classroom a nexus, a government nexus in order so to give so rise. So it's two very different things. So somebody knocks on my door, I open the door, and they push through, come in, take something off my coffee table, and walk out the front door. It's very different if it's a police officer versus a private citizen. Absolutely. So you've just, what you've aligned are the two differences in how, where you would, what, who would have standing and where would they bring that and in which court would they bring it? Yeah, no, that's right. And then, you know, the other thing, Mitch, that we've seen, and, and we've talked about this with Michael Cohen too, when we've had discussions about other uh, issues that are before the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, is this idea that the issue of standing uh, itself can be a point of contention. And, and there's good reason for that, because you don't get to uh, the merits of a case unless you can establish that there's some kind of connection with the government. So, for instance, uh, religion, the playground case, the, the recycled uh, tires, right? Right. And we talked about that with Michael a couple weeks ago, where the a church wanted to take advantage of a government program that was providing free or low-cost recycled tires to put under playground equipment. And the state in that case said, no, you're a religious organization. You can't take advantage of a government program. That's right. And then the parties that were challenging the expenditures and challenging that program needed to establish as a threshold issue that there was some kind of state action or some kind of state connection. And the word action, you've talked about that in, in other contexts, but let's just briefly talk about it. We talked about sanctuary cities. The case was being brought by individual by institutions. In this case, it were counties and cities. They were bringing the case against the federal government, but they were bringing the case and nothing had been done yet. So they were claiming that the threat of the federal government to withhold future dollars was violating their rights. And so standing isn't just the, to be able to identify the players and the state actors, because in this case there's a state actor, but the question was, was there actually any harm yet? No one yeah. had done anything yet. They hadn't had any dollars withheld yet. That, that's a great, great point, Mitch, and I think that was done within the context of a, of a restraining, an equitable restraining order or a temporary restraining order, and we see this uh, a lot in, in actions that are brought to, to challenge certain expenditures, and you're bringing up a good point. 
that actually I think is probably better described as mootness or ripeness, which are two concepts that are also very, very important. Uh, and the mootness doctrine would mean that the, the alleged uh, wrongdoing uh, and claim by the alleged aggrieved party is a moot issue because there's no longer uh, any kind of harm. And ripeness, on the other hand, really means that the case is ready. It is ready to be heard. And, and your reference to there being uncertainty as to whether or not there's harm, because there's an imminence factor. And that's where I'm headed, Mitch. And I think that's where you were going. There needs to be a demonstration of facts to support that this is happening now. There's a cognizable harm now. It can't be uh, an estimated or a speculative kind of claim. And we see this used in, for example, tax challenge cases where a government passes a tax, could be local, county, state, federal, and a taxpayer group wants to have it set aside. And the tax has not even been levied yet. Not a nickel has been taken from you. So, so you say, well, you're taking my property. And therefore, there's the, the balance. The individual has their property, their money being taken by a state, in this case, the broad use of the state, whether it's local, county, state, federal, and they want it to be stopped. And you go, well, wait a minute. It hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> classic example, Mitch. In other words, no policy has been formally implemented, yet parties want to jump out in front to prevent implementation. And, and, and there's means by which that can be done, Mitch. We've talked about that. I mean, there's equitable means, emergency protective orders that, that are aimed at actually jumping in and preventing formal implication or uh, implementation, sorry, of, of certain uh, rules. Uh, and there's a way to do that as long as, as long as the showing is demonstrated. So the, the deal or the policy does not necessarily have to be inked or set in stone, so to speak, uh, before a party can challenge it. There still are means to challenge it and get around mootness or, or be able to actually demonstrate ripeness is another way to look at that. So this area of equal protection that we've talked about, it, it's amazing to me that there's so many directions that this goes in the law. We've, as you, you talked about some of those earlier, uh, we're going to see the, the question of you know, right to marry. And we saw that in 2015 in, in Obergefell, where the, it was the equal protection clause that we're talking about here, 4th, 14th, that goes to two individuals saying that they have the right to marry. And it gets before the court because the marriage certificate process is a state act. Right. So if it was just two individuals that want to have a private ceremony and the state's not involved and there's no contractual or legal or health care issues that come involved, the likelihood is the state would say, not my problem. Do what you want. But in this case, we had this interesting mix where the government issues the license and their, their failure to do so for two individuals because of the base of, of gender triggered 14th Amendment. That's right. It's the issuance of the actual license that gives rise to the state nexus. And we're going to see the one we talked about recently of the case where a company, a baker, 
didn't want to be forced to provide a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And you go, well, what could that have to do with the government at all? It turns out that if you want a business license to sell to the, to the citizenry, you go through the government and the business license then ties you to the government, ties you to these rights and equal protection, this broad sense of equal protection under contract comes into play. Yeah. And, and you know, Mitch, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of criticism um, by certain camps about uh, how liberally construed the standing doctrine may be at times. Uh, but the fact remains, and I talked about this previously when we had Michael on, Michael Cohen on, is that uh, the standing component uh, if you look traditionally at uh, a wealth of case law, is kind of a low bar. I mean, the nexus and the connection between the state uh, action and whether or not there is state involvement is, is a pretty easy showing. In other words, there's a lot of creative ways where you can find it. And uh, I think that's, this is editorial, but I think that's a sound, sound uh, policy. To really, do you think it really evolved that way? Because when in doubt, we'd rather have it get into the courts and let a judge or a judge and a jury balance these close calls rather than have it be just the business inspector on the street. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that, Mitch. I think that's probably right as far as a rationale. Yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting that it should be taken lightly, but you know, something as some people might think it's rather innocuous that it's the state that issues a marriage license and that that alone can give rise to standing. Well, that's a pretty significant and symbolic piece of paper, isn't it? It is. And then yet we see going for, they can issue a business license, which you know, maybe the business license might've cost $25 and you fill out a little half page piece of paper with your name, address, and your uh, tax number. And now you have a business license. And yet that too, was it appears is going to be enough or at least they did pass the standing test so that did get them into court on that that's issue. true and let's not forget that along with a business license and a business like a bakery involved in food service that gives rise to uh visits by health inspectors food inspectors those are state agencies right they are they are so I think it's oh, it's what we've been trying to do here is to talk about, and I know it sounds perhaps like we've wandered from one side to the other, but but really the breadth of the 14th Amendment lends itself to that because there's so many things packed into this that are so fundamental, and yet 150 years into it are still being heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in cases in this current term. Yes, yep. indeed. That's absolutely right. Uh, so I think we're gonna we're gonna see more of this. You know, we're gonna see right to privacy come back up under the issue of technology. You know, we talked about the right that the requirement that due process required uh, police to get a warrant for searching your cell phone data. Uh, we we're gonna see this come back up in the contractual cases related to whether retailers can sell and market your private information without telling you uh, it's going to come up in the licensing of bandwidth we're going to see the FCC I mean most people go 
what? What does the FCC yeah. have to do with any of this? That's right. <laughs> and yet, it's property, right? The, the, the bandwidth, the, the ability to use radio, TV, and the internet uh, becomes property rights, and property rights are entitled to have private contracts unless the government comes in and starts regulating in which they do with radio and TV, and they haven't yet been doing that it. That is correct. Well, away we go, Mitch. Great show. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Well, as always, we remind you, you can hear an archive of today's show on wagnerandwinnick.com or voiceamerica.com business channel. As Stephen and I remind you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.